The beginning of the Bible begins at the right place, doesn't it? It starts where things were created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world is so amazing. There is great brokenness and tragedy in a Genesis 3 world. That is not all that's true. The world in which we live is stunning. It reflects the greatness of God, His staggering majesty, His incalculable worth. It reflects it. The world is not God. But in being made by God, we would not be surprised to find evidences of design. People are drawn to beauty for these reasons, being astounded by all the symmetrical and carefully, intricately fine-tuned elements of the world. The earth on which we live is 93 million miles from the sun. That's a safe distance. I think you'd agree. If that number was 92 million miles, earth would be uninhabitable. If it was 94 million miles, we'd be a planet covered in ice. 93 million miles That's just right. The moon is the perfect distance away, 239,000 miles. And its pull affects the tides that happen on the earth. It affects the earth's tilt and rotation. And all of these factors help to ensure an environment for and stability of life. Oxygen comprises 21% of our atmosphere. If it were higher, fires would erupt. If it were lower, such as 15%, Human beings could not live, they would suffocate and die. If all of the various planetary movements were not precisely balanced in all of their gravitational forces, nothing could orbit around the sun. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, and there's enough scientific evidence to show this, to absolutely floor us, that the tilt and rotation of the earth and the distance of the earth from the sun and the moon and the thickness of the earth's crust and the level of gravity and all of these Various factors are the design of God. They are the fine-tuned factors that have been designed by God. If you opened up the back of a watch, or opened up the back of a television set, or opened up the hood of your car, you're looking at how things work by design. Even the heavens above are staggering, not just amazing things on earth and our environments, but in the Milky Way galaxy. There are hundreds of billions of stars, and when we look out in the night sky, we see but a small fraction of those things. In Psalm 8, the writer wants to marvel at the majesty of God in the heavens and the earth. The psalmist is inviting us to see with him the glorious and greatness of God that we might then marvel at the fact that He is mindful of us, that God cares for and is mindful of His image bearers. This is a hymn of praise. A hymn of praise might catch us by surprise when we remember what Psalms 3-7 through have been like. Psalms 3-7 through have been characterized by the surrounding of David by enemies. They have been characterized, those psalms characterized by a need for deliverance and at times expressions of lament and bodily affliction and external circumstances of threat. We are relieved to come to Psalm 8 after such a series of psalms where the power of God is needed for His his image bearer David. We see the power of God celebrated in Psalm 8. 
The power that delivers David has been displayed in the heavens and the earth. The God to whom David prays in Psalms 3 through 7 is a God mindful of David, who in the vastness of space, it would be reasonable to say, why would any significance be given to an image bearer? And in Psalm 8, this psalm of praise invites us to join David's way of looking at the world that we might conclude what he does. It's written to the choir master according to the giddeth. A giddeth might be something to the effect of a melody or an instrument that could set the, the tune or even a manner of, uh, of playing this psalm. But there's not much that could be said further than that. The authorship is clear. A psalm of David. He is the king of Israel. And in verse 1, the majestic name of God is highlighted. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first thing to notice about this opening expression is that the psalm ends by repeating it. We heard this a moment ago when I read before we prayed. And in verse 9, the refrain is given, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is fitting on the tail of Psalm 7, by the way. Psalm 7, verse 17, ends with saying, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And in Psalm 8, watch Him work. Listen to Him praise. Watch His mouth open and declare the greatness of God. He said He would in Psalm 7. And in Psalm 8, the proclamation is given. Now you might think at first in verse 1 that he's repeating the same word twice. O Lord, our Lord. But I want you to look carefully here. O Lord, most translations will have this, instead of the name Yahweh, they will put Lord in all caps. All capital letters, Lord, is the rendering of the word Yahweh, which is the name of God revealing himself as such to his people. And then our Lord, the second name Lord, that's not in all caps. Uh, We have capital letter L, but then the rest are lowercase. This is the translation of the word Adonai, or Lord, meaning one who is supreme, one who reigns as master, one who possesses authority. This is an expression of God's name and what David believes about God. Yahweh is our Lord. O Lord, O Yahweh, our reigning King, the one who is supreme in the earth. This is a confession. This is David declaring what believers in God must declare of him, that the living God is our Lord. And he is now going to say what has stirred this praise, and that is his awareness of the display of God's name in all the earth. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The name of God in all the earth is not subtle, but majestic. And if the word Lord connotes kingliness and authority, then the word majesty fits with it perfectly. In verse 1, the name of our king is a majestic name. It is the name above every name. The name which is worthy of all praise in all the earth. And he declares that God's name is indeed majestic in the whole wide world. This is a statement in the Bible about what we can notice in the natural revelation under the sun. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 
reports the words of Paul where he says, In the things around us, it has been clearly perceived God's eternal power and His divine nature. That in the world, in the heavens and the earth, man can discern that there is a God of infinite power who is of a divine nature. Paul says these things are clearly perceived. But people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and suppressed what they could know of God even to that degree. Paul here is echoing in the New Testament, Romans 1 verse 20, what Psalm 8 declares. That throughout the earth, we might know God's majestic revelation of Himself. God's name is to be praised. God is greater than His revelation. His greatness is perceived in His revelation, the creation. And His greatness is noted by His creatures made in His image. This is already drawing from what we know Genesis teaches us, isn't it? Psalm 8 requires us to praise God in light of what we know of God and what He's made known already in His Word. He's made the heavens and the earth. And when we see the design and glory of God in creation, we ought to declare the majesty of God's name in praise and delight. And then in verse 9, the psalm will close with this same proclamation. Knowing the framing of the psalm, that verse 1 and verse 9 open and end the same way, this should signal to us a main takeaway of the psalm. The writer has chosen to repeat himself, in other words, at the end. And why? For emphasis. That we might know the majestic name of God for which he is to be praised and exalted is a thematic point from the psalm. Then we see in verse 2, praise from the weak. We have noticed in verse 1 and seen in verse 9, the majestic power and name of God in all the earth that God has made. And compared to God's power, the weakest and powerless among us are named next in verse 2. I want us to think of verse 1 and verse 2 as a kind of statement and contrast with that statement. What contrasts with verse 1, the majesty and glory of God, would be in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, if we notice verses 1 and 2 together, the end of verse 1 says, you set your glory above the heavens. God's glory exists and is magnified in and reflected in what he has made. And then we see in verse 2 the powerlessness of the weak praising God who is of such glory and greatness. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength. Strength there is an image of a stronghold. It's as if you take something that seems insignificant and powerless. That's not going to be relevant for the task at hand. And then you make something of that. And then you realize, okay, behold the skill of the maker who has fashioned this out of that. And he has established strength or demonstrated his power in using and being delighted in by the weakest and powerless among us. You see, the foes and enemies of David 
In verse 2, the enemy and the avenger, those that would oppose God and his people, even the evil one from Genesis 3 forward, who would oppose the seed of the woman, they are powerless before God, and his greatness and wisdom are demonstrated in that the powerless are loved and vindicated by him. David's foes should tremble because those deemed irrelevant and peripheral, uh, those babes and infants of the ancient world, they know in praise to God with their words and actions. Now, David, I think here is speaking hyperbolically. I don't think he's imagining a newborn baby singing all four verses of how great thou art. He is, however, saying that these, the, these babies in their design and in their powerless state of dependence, they demonstrate something there to be known and learned. And we see here the foes of God Noticing that he establishes strength in a paradoxical way. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. If we take the most vulnerable among us and recognize that in Israel's life, as people would grow and as people would learn, they were to learn about God. They were to learn to confess the truth of God. They were to learn the word of God. So that indeed, the powerless in the ancient Near Eastern world would be used by God as a display of His power and His strength. This, I think, assumes a Genesis background as well. That the image bearers would be fruitful and multiply. And that in being fruitful and multiplying, the babes and infants would be those used by God to make a name for Himself. The greatness of God established here. In verse 2, to still the enemy and the avenger means to put their designs or words to a stop. Think of the squealing of brakes. Here the avenger and the enemy, they have been going about it their worst. They have been trying uh, against the Lord and His people to accomplish their wicked and sinister plans. And they are brought to a screeching halt. How? By someone more powerful than them, they have been brought by the powerless among them to a halt. Because the babes and the infants are used by the Lord in a way that staggers the wisdom of this world. I think what verse 2 is trying to show is that the greatness and majesty of God in verse 1 can be displayed in some ironic and surprising ways. That God can use the wisdom of the, he can use the weakness of the world to shame the strong. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. And in verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is the power of God and that his enemies can be brought to a halt by the powerless among them. Uh, it's demonstrating further the majesty of God. Jesus quotes verse 2. In the Gospels, there's this scene on, in Passion Week. In Matthew 21, it tells us that he's at the temple and the powerless and the weak among him are approaching. We read in Matthew 21 that the blind come to him and the lame come to him and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said, Jesus, do you hear what they are saying? 
And Jesus says, apparently you've not read the Bible. He says in verse 16, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and babies? You have established praise or strength. Jesus's quote is appropriate. It demonstrates the majesty of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The confession of those coming to Christ and praising Christ who are the weak and the vulnerable and the powerless of the world. It exalts the majesty of Jesus. In Psalm 8, it's the majesty of God exalted. In Matthew 21, it's the majesty of Jesus exalted. For Jesus is the son of the living God. So he appropriates fittingly, rightfully, Psalm 8 verse 2 in his ministry to again confound the scribes and the Pharisees and all of their cleverness and wisdom. Jesus has used the blind and the lame and the weak and the children's cries in the temple courts to demonstrate his own majesty and redemptive power. In verses 3 to 4... The psalmist wants to ask a question. In order to ask this question, he rehearses in verse 3 the amazing nature of the heavens and the earth. He says in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The way verses 3 and 4 go together is he is saying, given the vastness and power and glory of you and all that you have made, we seem so insignificant, and yet you are mindful of us. And David knows God is mindful. David's praying. This is a song of praise and prayer to God. David is convinced God is mindful of him. He's just amazed by that. David is not coming here in Psalm 8 with some sort of presumptuous and arrogant posture. It amazes David that in the glory of the heavens and the earth, God cares for image bearers. When he says, when I look at your heavens, and these heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. Why are we bringing up the fingers of the Lord here? Well, in Psalm 8, I don't think we should imagine David views God as having physical Uh, fingers on hands. Instead, I think he is depicting a master artist who would not just work with tools, who might just pick up, you know, a spade here and and something uh, here to smooth things out and maybe sculpting or painting and lays down the tools and says, you know what, you know, I I need to come in here and with my finger, I'm just going to make this little adjustment. I'm going to make this little movement here. The work of the fingers is, I think, meant to imply an even greater attention to detail. And that the work of the heavens are the display of the intricate design of the Most High God, the moon and the stars as well. David says, when I think about this, that you have set these things in place. He said, this is the question that I think about. Then what is man that you're mindful of him? To picture uh, the heavens here with the moon and the stars is a, a nighttime perspective, isn't it? So we're not going out in the middle of the day today and being like, look at all of the moon and the stars above us. Um, there are occasions where the moon could be visible during the day. Uh, we're thinking here from a night perspective, aren't we? In verse 3, the moon and stars are part of the staggering nature of creation from David's viewpoint. He feels so small. And it is good to be humbled in light of the grandeur of creation. 
but then to be amazed, in addition to that, that God is mindful of us. He says here, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. This is a poetic way, I think, of saying the same thing twice. We know that man is created in Genesis 1. We're told in Genesis 1.26 that God said, let us make man in our image. And God makes man and is instructing man to have dominion and to subdue his creation. God does not give up authority. Man is given a derivative authority to represent God in the creation. Man, son of man, this is language of the fact that we were created. We are mankind. We are not God. We are human beings, image bearers of God, not God's. We are those made and are not maker. The vast gap between creature and creator is not something we will be able to leap across. What is man? Because that's who we are. We are mankind. And yet God is mindful of us. David feels so small in light of all this around. And yet God is mindful of and cares for us. The Psalms, the book of Job, other parts of the prophets, they celebrate the care of God over his creation. So this is a poetic question. What is man? And then this question is going to be answered. The psalm does not end there, right? He's going to ask the question and he's going to answer it. But I want you to notice this language, son of man, for a moment. Does that make you think at all of the ministry of Jesus? In fact, the title Son of Man was the most used title Jesus would refer to himself with. And that title is drawn from Daniel chapter 7 and from Psalm chapter 8. In fact, the language in Daniel 7 probably reflects further back what we read in Psalm 8. This language that reminds us of man and creation and dominion. One of the reasons we would want to see Daniel 7 and Psalm 8 in the background of Jesus' title as the Son of Man is because Jesus is the last Adam. We are reminded with making man or the Son of Man that Adam was creature. He is not creator. He is made. He is not maker. And we are reminded with Jesus' language that he is the Son of Man, that he is the last Adam come to demonstrate dominion and to subdue all his enemies, including death. More on that in a moment. But we are frail, frail children of dust. We are mortal. And therefore, man and son of man language presses that point. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man who goes with the clouds to the ancient of days. Glorious, heavenly, exalting language based in Daniel 7 and then reaching farther back to Psalm 8. This is Jesus demonstrating how he rightly understands himself. Jesus is the last Adam who has come to demonstrate dominion and authority and reign over all things. And in union with Christ, we shall reign with him, being restored as God's image bearers in the way things ought to be. I don't think after Genesis 3 that we are no longer image bearers. It's just that being an image bearer of God now is a task and a responsibility to be exercised in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, 
we are tempted to invert the image-bearing status of God, that rather than represent God faithfully, we seek to be God. We seek to reign as authorities in our own life. We seek to call the shots and to determine by our own actions and words what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. We want to be the judge. And yet, the humbling facts of Scripture remind us of where of what God is like and who we are in light of Him. We see God's design that we are image bearers and now in a fallen world, we are being renewed and restored as God's image bearers to rightly represent Him in the world. In Christ, we are being freshly renewed and commissioned to represent God and to declare His glory and to make disciples of the nations. The goal of being an image bearer of God had a global context for it in Genesis 1. So does the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the task and responsibility for the church of Jesus Christ to be faithful image bearers of God and make faithful disciples and image bearers of God in the world He has made for His glory. And in verses 3 and 4, we see the question raised... And now in verses 5 through 8, it is answered. In verses 5 through 8, he says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. This envisions angels, I think, the heavenly beings. And that little lower than the heavenly beings reminds us that they were created, okay, themselves, they, they themselves were created by God. And a little lower than them, we have been made as God's image bearers. You made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We must affirm the vastness of the majesty and grandeur of God and how seemingly insignificant we feel in light of that. And yet we must also affirm what the Bible teaches of God's design, that we are made in God's image. Therefore, God has endowed us with a significance and responsibility. In verse 5, being crowned with glory and honor. He did not say that of the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, or the beasts of the land. But he says it of male and female. That God has crowned us with glory and honor. We live in a world that is eager to try to maintain ideas of dignity and justice and human rights and love of neighbor. But friend, if we are only the product of evolutionary chemical combinations and productions, then all of those notions of dignity and love of neighbor and upholding respect and responsibility toward others fall to the ground without anything to support those notions. We must have a view of what God has made us as. And that in being endowed with dignity and honor, to be crowned with glory and splendor, we are image bearers and we matter because we are made by God. We are made by God. People are endowed with dignity because we are image bearers. There is no human being who is not an image bearer. And therefore, having been made a little lower than the heavenly beings, and yet crowned with glory and honor, we see in verse 6, more language reminding us of Genesis. You have given him, man or the son of man, dominion 
over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Uh, Occasionally I will bring up the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a fitting illustration here that applies. The Chronicles of Narnia talk about Aslan and the kings and queens of Narnia. And the kings and queens of Narnia in C.S. Lewis's story. These are not these are not human beings who rule because they've taken rule from Aslan. Rather, they have a derived authority where Aslan is king and these lesser than the heavenly beings, if you will, to borrow Psalm 8, the kings and queens of Narnia, they reign under the rightful rule and glory and authority of one greater than they. And in verse 6, being given dominion, And having put all things under the the feet of of his image bearers, this is a way of saying we are image bearers over creation, but we are not over God. We are derivative because we are a creature. He has given us authority without, without diminishing his own greatness and authority. God can give without needing replenishment. God can bestow and endow without becoming less in himself at all. We have all things under our feet. This is reminding us of Genesis 1.28. God says to subdue and exercise dominion. Psalm 8 is lifting language from that earlier part of the Bible. All things will include verses 7 and 8. Not limited here, but here are some more examples. All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. Clearly Genesis 1 is being invoked, right? If you go through Genesis 1 in the days of creation, God makes the birds, He makes the fish, He makes the beasts. He fills the creation that He has formed. And He crowns with glory and honor whom? He crowns His people with glory and honor. He gives them dominion to subdue and exercise dominion over the works of the hands of God. In other words, if this has not been um, revoked after Genesis 3, which it hasn't, then what we recognize is you and I are like atoms of of creation. God has given us a responsibility as his image bearers to rightly represent him in the world. That with our works... And our words and our actions and responsibilities, we would be faithful image bearers of God. That an image might rightly reflect the one the image is meant to evoke. We, therefore, are rightly warned about idolatry. Because idolatry in the scriptures contorts and distorts the image bearing work of God's people. It takes Uh, attention away from God and glorifies what is not God and worships what is made instead of the maker. Therefore, idolatry is dehumanizing and it dishonors God most of all. In verses 5 through 7, he is answering the question, or verses 5 through 8, he is answering the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? He has been made lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor, with dominion over everything, God's hands have fashioned. And then in verse 9, the majestic name of God is repeated. This verse from verse 1 and verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, our reigning one, the one supreme in all the earth, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If God's works and wonders are great, then greatly to be praised is our God. 
We are made as those to worship Him. The most morally responsible thing we are called to do as God's image bearers is worship. That is the thing that most reflects the worth of God. That we would honor Him as God, glorify Him as God, attend to His Word, seek to live for the sake of His name. How majestic is your name in all the earth is a declaration that others might join in with that echo. That others might say with David and with us in 2023 that God is great and exalted and worthy to be praised. His name in all the earth. Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, from verse 2. We talked about His earthly ministry and how He uses that in, in Matthew 21. I want you to notice something, though, about Jesus' ministry and the way the Scriptures depict Him. The Scriptures depict Jesus as the one who will best fulfill Psalm 8. That while you and I are God's image bearers who are called to subdue and exercise dominion, listen to what the Bible says about Jesus in the letters of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that death must be defeated, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Talking about Jesus there. And in Ephesians 1.22, And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. You see, Jesus is a new and last Adam. Christ has come, not because He's Adam reincarnate. No, He is the Word become flesh, the Son of God incarnate, that He might rule and establish dominion as the one who has the name above all names. And that in union with Christ, our responsibilities as God's image bearers are renewed and restored and headed toward their point of consummation. In the Psalms, or in rather the book of Hebrews, Psalm 8 appears in Hebrews 2 verse 6. The writer is wanting us to think about the giving of his son into the world, God giving his son into the world, and he says, we saw him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. One way to talk about the incarnation is using the language of Psalm 8. So one of the ways we talk about the incarnation is that the word became flesh and the the son of God takes to himself a real human nature. And human nature lower than the heavenly beings. And then we're told that Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels. For a little while? What happened? We must ask this question because in Psalm 8, it doesn't tell us we were made for a little while lower than the heavenly beings. But it does, tells, tells, it does tell us in Hebrews 2 that Jesus, in his incarnation, was lower than the heavenly beings for a little while. What happened? We think about how the birth of Christ ushers into his life without sin, conquering all temptation living with blamelessness and total integrity, and then takes our sin on the cross, and then, on the third day, rises immortal, physical immortality, perishable, putting on imperishability, last Adam, raised to defeat death. 
subduing and exercising dominion. You know what Jesus did on the third day? He exercised dominion as the last Adam. You know what Jesus will do at his return? He will defeat the last enemy, that is death, by raising us from the dead because we are in union with him. Christ is the true and greater Adam. He is one whose dominion and authority is over all things. Jesus says in the Great Commission, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So while for a little while he was lower than the heavenly beings in the incarnate state, he was raised from the dead bodily and now exists as the one with the name above all names, as the one who is truly God and truly man, glorified and eternal in his physical state. This means he is no longer lower than the heavenly beings, but reigning in glory above them all in his incarnation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh, O Christ Jesus, O Son of God, our sovereign and supreme one over all things, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together.